Welcome to the Adaptive Edge podcast, where we bring the latest in psychology and neuroscience to your everyday life. Today, I've got Brendan Faraday. He's a PhD student in the developmental and psychological sciences at Stanford University. Uh, He's a good friend of mine. We did our master's in human development and psychology at Harvard together. Um, So lots of good stuff that we talk about on a regular basis. So today we'll be talking about identity and living a life of purpose and the ways in which emotions, reasoning and morality play into decision making and agency and your motivation and all that types of good stuff. So uh, a little more about Brendan. As I mentioned, he's a PhD student in developmental and psychological sciences at Stanford. Uh, Broadly, he cares about the social and psychological forces that bring people together. His research interests lie at the intersection of developmental psychology and normative theory, specifically investigating how identity and a sense of purpose contribute to moral judgments, decision-making, intellectual humility, and agency. Prior to Stanford, he was a research assistant at the Agency by Design Initiative within Harvard's Project Zero Lab and a teacher for several years in Santa Barbara, California. He's got his BA in history from Pepperdine University, and as I mentioned, We did the master's at Harvard in human development and psychology together. So, Brendan, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm excited to talk. Pleasure to be here, Greg. (laughs) I'm excited to talk about these topics. Um, So, you know, I gave you I gave that formal introduction there. um, But please tell us more about, you know, what motivated you to get into this line of research, um, being a teacher, all of these things. How, How do you come to talk about these things today? Yeah, with, with, without, without making this fit too well within our topic, um, I really do feel like I found purpose in uh, caring for other people very directly in the classroom. Um, I, I felt very alive when I was doing that. I felt like it was a good alignment between what I cared about, what I thought the world needed, and uh, what I was good at. Um, and it, it was a wonderful experience. Uh, that, though, got me into these, these bigger questions about how we're raising children up uh, to be members of society and what kind of society are we wanting them to occupy? And how do we, how do we create these, these uh, bonds that create the social fabric that hold us together? And so looking at the mechanisms that uh, that, that social fabric's constructed from, uh, being morality uh, and then our sense of self and then our sense of purpose moving forward, um, that ultimately got me into this line of work uh, and, and wanting to figure out how it happens and how we can ensure that it happens well. That's that's really interesting. I can totally relate to on the uh, sense of being a teacher, just developing others, really feeling that invigoration, but also wanting to do more, maybe wanting to do more on a societal scale and, and, and intellectually being stimulated as well by the psychological questions of how to do that. So really, really great stuff. Thanks for joining us. Um, so we'll, we'll start off by talking about, I think, identity and its sense of purpose before we get into more on the, you know, the, the research side and psychology about what is emotion, what is affect, how much of this is competing with reason when it comes to morality and making decisions that are good for you and others. Um, so so let's, let's go in that um, order. So if we focus on identity first, what are we talking about I, when we talk about identity and uh, how is it related to sense of purpose? Yeah, so to start off with sense of purpose, um, I my, my advisor is uh, William Damon, who has conceptualized the construct um, in a very foundational way. 
And one of the ways that he articulates um, purposes distinct from maybe a more colloquial understanding of it is that it necessarily includes uh, beyond the self component. So when you're thinking about uh, whether someone has a sense of purpose, whether you have a sense of purpose, what is necessarily included in that is that you have goals that stand to benefit the world beyond just yourself. You're not out to just make money or find personal satisfaction. It's, it's not pure hedonism, but you're, you believe that you have something that you can offer the world and you want to improve it in some way. Um, one asterisk says that it's not necessarily social. It doesn't necessarily need to be for other people. This is something that I'm still trying to wrap my head around, but it's, it's meant to contribute to the world beyond oneself. And so that sense of purpose of I have something to offer the broader world, uh, it affirms your value because if, if you have something to offer the world, you, um, you have the capacity to do something in the world. So it affirms your value by nature of, of your ability. Uh, it also imparts a sense of responsibility. If, if you are empowered and have a sense of uh, and have a sense and have a capacity to contribute to the world, then you are also responsible to do that in some way. Mm -hmm. And those factors together, along with just having goals, uh, the motivating power of goals, pulling someone forward, uh, that helps construct a sense of self, a sense of who I am, my belonging, um, the, the role that I occupy in the community that I'm in, in, in whatever context I'm in. Um, it helps a person feel a sense of, I, I am, uh, this, is, this is who I am. Okay. All right. I love it. Lots to unpack there. So you talk about um, the difference between purpose and goals. So I definitely want to touch on that. But you also in in uh, in informally touch on motivation there when you're talking about responsibility. So it's like a two way street. If someone is believing in something larger than themselves, and we see this in school consulting when I do school consulting, and also in businesses when they're trying to create good culture, right, and invest people in the work, uh, they want that transcendence. Uh, the, they want their employee to experience that transcendence of just working for the paycheck uh, because yeah. research shows even like just giving people raises is not going to motivate them in the long run. You need to invest them in the work. So um, and you mentioned that piece about giving them responsibility. OK, now someone feels that they're important right now. Someone feels that they have a task to do. It's going to get them up in the morning. So really, yep. really, really, really interesting stuff. So when I say when we talk about these things. Um, and we say this is our identity. How does this relate to what we might think of other times when we hear the word identity? You know, um, like, okay, I'm, I'm a male, I'm a, I'm a Murray, I have all of these identities, I'm a psychologist. So, in what sense is this related to those usages of identity? Yeah, I. I think it differs in a slight way. And I, I say that in the sense that when we're talking about purpose being something that mediates um, an individual's, uh, the relationship between an individual's identity and their well being, it's in terms of the way that it organizes one's life, that it, it allows someone to shape their sense of self around values, goals, um, and intentions. And so that, that sort of, I, I have clear direction, I'm going forward, and I kind of know what to do as I move forward. That, that's what uh, creates this sense of self, which is a little different than some other ways that we talk about identity, mm -hmm. um, which, which is, we, we can talk identity. about 
yeah, more social process where individuals around us reflect ourselves back to us. Um, and so then our context and our situatedness is very, very key in that. When we're talking about identity and purpose, we're talking more of the internal processes as an individual makes decisions. It's not divorced from the social influence, right. but we're, it's just maybe more uh, an interoceptive process. Nice. Love that. Interoception. It gets a lot of, it doesn't get enough credit. Good word. We'll get into that later when it comes to intuition, I'm sure. Um, so this is, in, this is really interesting to me. So I'm, I'm coming at psychology mostly from a sociological perspective, especially with my doctoral work, it's in sociology. So when we talk about identity, it tends to be more, yes, that social identity, um, whether it's the role you play in society, um, but, or your race or your, your social class, these things. But also we have personal identity, which is what sets you apart from others. So if I had to say, I know you're talking about more psychological, um, uh, you know, your point of view, but if I had to say this would be, this would fall under personal identity, how you, what you think about yourself, how you fit into the, you know, to all of your other identities, even it's the master identity. So um, yeah, it's really powerful, really powerful stuff. Well, and, and you brought up briefly this idea of motivation, which in connection to purpose, which I think is very key to this, right? Like I'm, I'm working on a paper right now where we found a correlation between uh, college students' sense of purpose and their self-reported sense of stress while they're in college. And then, so purpose is a moderator of that relationship between stress and life satisfaction in college students. Um, it's a really simple interaction, but what we see is that, or the, the hypothesis is that purpose functions as an, as an organizing construct. When you are moving through college and experiencing all these stressors, um, purpose is something that puts them inside some sort of meaningful framework. It's not just stress, it's not just writing a paper um, late at night, but it's in service of this greater purpose that you have, of these greater goals. So instead of that stress being just chaotic and meaningless, it takes on an element of meaning, which then becomes a motivating factor that pushes you forward, pushes you through resistance uh, and gets you out the other side, having a higher sense of life satisfaction. I'd be really interested to hear how you guys were measuring that, the measuring purpose and someone's sense of purpose. And also I'm wondering, are you saying that you experience less stress, like in your embodied experience of stress is different, right? I would imagine it doesn't feel like maybe what we would think of as stress. It would, you said it slows you down less. And so to me, I'm thinking stress is so physical. Maybe I'm feeling that like it's, it wouldn't feel exactly like stress to me. That's, that's a good question. It's, there's a little bit of nuance there in that what one, how this is measured is self-reported. Yes. Um, when we, and when we measure purpose, we don't really measure, we don't ask an individual, do you have a sense of purpose? Right. Um, we measure it through proxy questions and then we assemble that into whether an individual has a sense of purpose or not. Um, because, because that terms can just get conflated and misunderstood uh, very easily. Yeah. And so we've had to assemble it from other things. So when we're talking about stress, they experience stress. They, they, they do talk about having similar rates of stress. We just see the effects on life satisfaction um, being less when someone has a high sense of purpose. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's, I, I wouldn't say in the moment it's, it's not there. It mm -hmm. just takes on a different meaning. Okay. So it's, it's almost like, 
you still feel it. You still experience. It's like you, you get knocked down just as much, so to speak, but you have more energy to get back up if you were to simplify it. That's a good way of saying it. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, you also, um, yeah, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, kind of push you back as much as okay. you're moving forward. Yeah. Okay. Um, and if you want to just connect this to, I mean, this, we're, we're not able to prove this, but if, if you look at surrounding literature, there's a lot that, that looks at a similar effect happening when someone, um, when someone sees that that their future self is being benefited by those current decisions. Uh, I'm nice. referencing work by Hazel Marcus, who looks at these possible future selves and these ways we imagine uh, the type of people that we're becoming. So when that imagination of, of who I'm becoming is very vivid, um, it pulls you, it pulls you more towards the future and outside of that immediate, whatever's happening there, that immediate stressor, um, which then helps individuals avoid, uh, rumination. This just, mm -hmm. this feeling of like, of being stuck, of being consumed with the present stress. Um, and that, that rumination itself is connected to high rates of depression and all For sorts sure. of things about, right? Yes. Yes. Rumination is, is an evil, one of the worst parts about depression. It causes depression. And then once you're in it, this cycle, you know, there's a big distinction reflection, thinking about yourself and thinking about your life reflecting is very healthy while ruminating. Uh, it, it's, it's very unhealthy. Hmm. Um, so what would, what would you say the difference between rumination and reflection is? How would you define that, Greg? I think rumination is negative it's it's balanced negatively right like it's all about things that are going wrong mm. or or could go wrong you might even also consider it like obsession like what people tend yeah. to think of as obsession over things worrying this type of thing whereas reflection i think involves a lot less judgment and more of perception of course you will judge but i think it's more about just seeing things as they are and just thinking about them with curiosity right? There's less of that pain. There's just less negative balance in the act of reflecting. You can think about the difference of like just journaling, you know, journaling your thoughts, getting them down on paper, coming to new conclusions. These are healthy reflections versus like obsessing over, did you offend that person at the party yeah. the other night? Are they, are they mad at you now? Are your friends not going to text you? Like that rumination that just kind of, it's a really negative thought pattern. Such a negative thought pattern. And like, and just, just the, and for, for me, what, what's most salient there is, is whether you see that present thing in the context of a larger picture. So I'm always asking, how can we get individuals invested in seeing time more holistically or seeing themselves on a, on a broader temporal continuum? You know, like even if we're looking at things like executive function and self-control. So much of that is how do you pull an individual to think about future benefit and value that future benefit more than the immediate payoff in the moment? Hmm. How do you get someone to stretch their, their field of vision a little farther ahead of time to deny a momentary good or something that feels momentarily cathartic like rumination in service of like acknowledging, well, there's a bigger friendship here that that one right. um, bad, bad phrase that a friend said to me uh, doesn't over like that doesn't get overruled by that, you know, um, yes. putting it in context is maybe all that I'm trying to describe. No, that's a great point. I love that, that delay. And, and we're kind of, this may connect later when we're talking about um, affect and emotional processes versus reasoning processes. It may be that rumination is driven by affect and emotion, whereas reasoning and reflection may be a bit more uh, 
about reasoning. I don't know. But I also, before we, before we get to there, um, I think one of the main reasons that someone would watch, you know, and listen to this type of podcast is to figure out, okay, how do I define my purpose? How do I define my identity so that I can transcend myself? Um, so I know you mentioned that it's subjective, the definition of purpose, but you, you said you got, you measured it in other ways. So I, I have some ideas about how I would measure purpose and this, this side of identity. Um, yeah. h- how did you guys go about it? Um, it's, it's more so uh, what I described there is you just don't directly ask, but you ask similar things like, do you have life goals? Mm-hmm. Um, what's, what are those goals? And how do those play into your actions now? So we have a, we have a really neat hierarchy to kind of fit people into um, that we're, we're, I think is still being developed, but it's this idea of like someone that has high aspirations for contributing to the world, but isn't currently doing anything about it. That's someone that we would call a dreamer or, and we would not say that that person has purpose. We would say they have aspirations um, that might result in purpose later on, but unless you have goals that you are actively pursuing right now that contribute to the world beyond the self, uh, you would not have a sense of purpose. So in one of the reasons why we do semi-structured interviews and I'm online with college students for an hour asking them questions is because you can't get that nuanced information yeah. um, through uh, even even an open field in a survey. Like you, you can have a stu- you can have someone say, oh, my, I one of my goals is to make a lot of money, right? And you hear that and you go, that person maybe doesn't have purpose. But then you ask them, well, why do you want to make a lot of money? And they go, well, when I make money, I will be able to um, fight for this community that I grew up in that I think uh, has experienced a certain amount of injustice. Or they say, my parents came to this country, sacrificed a lot for me, and I want to be able to take care of them and pay them back. Oh, or you have someone say, well, I just want to have a, I just want to be successful or be wealthy or, or have a satisfied life. Those are very different levels of purpose that we want to capture that you can't just with a fill in the blank or a Likert scale. Right. Okay. Interesting. So that last person, the person who is really just out for self and status and, and those types of measures of success, this is hedonic happiness, right? This is hedonism. Is that how we would talk about that? Yeah. I mean, personally, I get, I get stuck trying to figure out when anything is purely intrinsically motivated or not hedonistic. Mm. Like you're what, what we understand as hedonism, which is my own pleasure, I I think is a fair distinction. Um, I just get hung up with this idea that at the end of the day, I will, I will be experiencing some sort of satisfaction, even if my action is completely for the benefit of other people. There's some sort of what, yes. do you, what do you think about that? How, how do you conceptualize that? No, I, I was getting, yes, I agree that uh, even the most altruistic acts have some, you know, ha- intrin- intrinsic happiness in them that you feel good about yourself. So that debate, that's a very, that's a matter of philosophy right there. Um, but yeah, I, I think that it is important to distinguish whether someone is making, wants to make money to give it back or to share versus what I would think of as more hedonism, more pleasure-based, right? You have that money so you can buy the nice cars, you can buy the nice clothes into perpetuity, right? And that's it. Um, I think that is more about hedonism. It's certainly not not altruism. And I think um, the, the connection I was going to lead to is, um, you know, in sociology, um, Corey Keyes at Emory has eudaimonic happiness 
uh, he distinguishes between eudaimonic happiness, which he has a, a model of well-being based on that, um, versus hedonic happiness, which is that, mm. that, that pleasure that we've just talked about. So he's based the model of flourishing on eudaimonic happiness. Uh, and under those, he's got three categories, social well-being, psychological well-being, and emotional well-being, which each of those mm. then has its components. So, um, you know, I think this, I just want to make, you know, cross, if you want to say cross-disciplinary, right, from psychology to sociology, um, connections here, we, we see this, what you're studying um, at Stanford uh, and in sense of purpose, we see this clearly connecting to what's going on at Emory um, in sociology too. So um, you, and I'm really glad I did ask further about how you define this when you're researching, you say you're talking to college students, um, because what I do in, in, my, in my life coaching and my personal development coaching um, I help people define their personal identity. We talk a lot about what are your beliefs, what are your values, and then we get into goals a little bit later. And I don't use the word purpose, like I haven't defined that and 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 used it. But it's interesting how you were saying, okay, it's not just about values; it has to have a goal. It has to has that that like plan of action kind of attached to it, and then you have that sense of purpose. So you know, all of this stuff is is really good. It's not just for college students. At any time in your life, you can make a transition. You can redefine yourself, um, and and this is this is what's so great about psychology. Yeah, and the purpose development is not it's it's a developmental process. It's not a set trait or a virtue that you you acquire. It's uh, it's it's not something that's built in your genetic code. It's very malleable, and mm. we've found uh, in the context of adolescence specifically. Um, it usually arises when there's an emotional reaction to a problem or a need in the world. So we see this a lot through volunteering or through individuals getting out and entering into communities that they're not normally part of and they recognize some need and they're emotionally affected by it. That, that we found kickstarts this purpose development process. They're acquainted with a need, they have an emotional response, and now they feel an obligation and an ability to go and meet that need. So if, if we're talking to someone that wants to figure out their life purpose, I would, I would ask, are you, are you getting yourself into situations where you are being introduced to what the world needs? Or as said another way, are you in a context where you are engaging with the hardships of others? Because if your life is completely comfortable and you're not feeling any tension, hmm. there's, 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 not the, there's not the interplay that, uh, that's required to help you realize that there's a, a void that you can fill, that a, a need that you can meet. Really nice. Really nice. I love that. And that just, just emphasizes the importance of service work you know, of volunteering of that, assuming that, assuming that you're, you've made it to a place where you're comfortable. Um, but yeah, that's just why it's, it can be paralyzing to inherit large sums of money, right? You have no purpose. You have like, everything's taken care of. Um, so. well, and, and as you, as you touched on earlier, that, that kind of directs your gaze inward. There's this really neat monastic phrase, uh, in Latin, it's incurvatus in se, which translates as to be curved in on oneself. And they, they use this to describe just the, the point of, of soul stagnation when your eyes and your life are just turned in on your own needs. Mm -hmm. And while there's absolutely a place for acknowledging your needs and working through trauma and all that personal self-investment that's, that's like crucial to becoming a full and actualized person, we, there's, there's some element 
of life that is only tapped when our gaze is directed outward. There's, mm. there's no way around that. If, if your whole life is about yourself, uh, there, there is a diminished uh, life experience. Um, it's, it's not everything that it could be. That's really great. And, 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 and another point off of that is why it's so important that, that we see uh, problems in the community that we're a part of uh, as our problems that we don't, that we don't uh, set up barriers between ourselves and the, br- the broader community that we're in uh, for risk of not taking responsibility for them. Okay. And that's, that's probably dynamic that, that is, is for another podcast, but um, just being acquainted with the problems of your community and also feeling responsible for them is really important for purpose development. Yes. And it, community defined broadly there. So if you're listening yes. and- you're part of a business, you're part of an organization, you're, you know, you're part of a family. Uh, these are all communities, anything, whether you're at school as a student or whatever your roles are, um, these are all your communities that you're partaking in. So um, I, I totally want to underline what Brennan's saying there. So, um, all right. So, you know, in wrapping up on purpose and motivation and well-being, I think I would love to talk about the importance of agency. I think you and I both, this was something we learned a lot about at Harvard, the importance of agency in education, um, but also it it doesn't stop there, right? In adult development as well, we need to have agency in our life um, to be motivated to participate in the family, at work, whatever part of, whatever groups we're a part of. So does this come up for you in your research as well? So what's the importance of agency when it comes to motivation, purpose, and these things? Yeah. Uh, agency is very important because if you do not have agency and the, the, these things that we're talking about, like goals, what you're heading after, um, the things that are happening to you in life, if, if you do not have any say over how you respond to those or how you move forward in life, then there is no chance for those things to be incorporated into your identity so you 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 can't identify with what you're going after or what you care about or um the the ways you're seeking to benefit the world beyond yourself that can be incorporated your identity so it loses that um that the, the benefit that we were just talking about a moment ago um but also it takes away responsibility and if you don't have a sense of responsibility that can affect motivation yeah um responsibility is a key facet of, of feeling motivated to move forward. This, this ought, or this should, mm. um, especially in terms of, of morality and helping others. If, if everything is um, either biologically determined or even culturally determined um, there's, there's, I, I think you can lose out on a lot of motivation. Right. So that really, really emphasizes the importance of agency. You can't just give, you can't give somebody a purpose, right? They have to have a say. So when we're talking about agency, we're talking about choice, talking about a person's free will to choose and, and, and follow their own path. Um, so I'm sure, a bunch, I'm sure the listeners can relate to that a lot, you know, being forced to do things, whether it was in school, at work, you had no say in it. Um, it just, it drains the energy. So um, no surprise there that that's supported in the research as well. Good, good. So we'll transition into talking more about um, morality and how that leads into decision making. And so big questions that we'll cover up front are how much of this moral decision making is based on emotion and how much of it is based on reason. 
Um, so I'm really excited to talk about these things. Um, and we'll also get into kind of towards the end of this free will and how much a person should be held responsible for making a mistake, for example, or, you know, making a moral transgression. Um, so, so yeah, let's get into that. Um, before we do, I think, I think we, it's important to decide, to define some of these things, right. To define what yeah. exactly we're talking about. So we've got terms like emotion and affect that we'll cover. And also the dual reasoning model, um, that, that will be a big part of that. When I say dual reasoning, I'm talking about emotional, that's one. And then the other is, is, um, logical reasoning. So this would be the dual, you know, how are these things coming together? Is it more emotions? And then, you know, logic comes in after the fact, uh, are they fighting each other or are they working together? So, so we'll talk about these things. So, um, yeah, kick it off. Let's talk about emotion and affect. Why, what is the difference and does it matter? Is there a meaningful difference when, when it comes to somebody, you know, who's just trying to enjoy their life? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I'll, I'll leave the, the meaning question up to the listeners and then maybe to you, Greg. But the, the way that I understand emotion and affect fitting together um, is pulling especially from uh, uh, psychologist James Gross, um, who's come up with some wonderful process models of self-control um, and his uh, process, process models in a few other areas. He's, uh, he's subsets attitudes moods and emotions underneath affect. So affect is kind of the parent um, um, umbrella construct there with the, those three others being derived from that. And the way that I would describe affect is it's a quick assessment of good for me, bad for me. Uh, it's a little more subconscious. It's not something we're as much aware of. Um, while emotion is something that involves our processing of stuff that's outside of ourselves. So things going on around us, we take it in, we appraise it. This is um, Feldman Barrett's like appraisal model of emotions. We yes. take it in, we process it, we experience an emotion. Affect is a little quicker, a um, little more subconscious. Uh, but And and it's it's the pairing of a, a mental state with a sensory experience. Uh, science talks about it that way, and that's been helpful for me moving forward. For affect, How would, what would, yeah, for affect. What would you say? How would you relate the two? No, that's great. And um, I, I, it confused me at first when you said um, affect is the parent term of emotion, but it does make sense to me now. And, um, you know, that immediate good for me, bad for me with the balance, I think it's important, right? Positive or negative, good or bad feelings. <clears throat> Maybe what people think of as feelings in their body would be uh, fall under affect, whereas emotion is much more conceptual. It's much more socially determined. Um, but again, you, you still have that embodied experience of emotion because it's paired with affect. Right. And yeah. so am, am I yeah. getting that correct? Right. Okay. I would say so. I mean, if, if we just think about jealousy, like jealousy is something that relies on uh, some sort of cultural, like uh, de detecting a social condition or a social role or relationship that I'm in. I need to be looking at other people and what they have and feeling a sense of loss or deprivation or injustice and feeling like I should also have that thing. Like that, that sort of processing from the outside world is built, is, is an emotion. That's, mm. that's a more complicated thing while a quick, like feeling of um, I'm in a, I'm in a place of threat is more of, of an effective response, this feeling that I need to get out of there. Right, um, right. And you, the, the complexity is different, right? Yes. This is, uh, this is important to, to point out is that 
you mentioned Lisa Feldman Barrett, who I've talked about many times on the podcast, uh, affective neuroscientist, really, really leading the field uh, right now. Um, her research supports this. And she would also say that dogs, uh, animals don't experience emotions, right? She would call that affect. Mm -hmm. So you mm -hmm. would say, you know, a, a growling dog, that's not anger, right? That's, that's affect. That's something else. So, um, so the next thing to think about is mood. And I know I certainly can get in some bad moods or get in a funk and we're all kind of aiming, I think, to be in a good mood. Right. And, and I really try to steer people away from toxic positivity, but I think we'd be lying if we said, you know, good moods weren't better than bad moods. And it would be, I think we're all kind of wondering now, what is, how, how does a mood form and, um, what is the relationship to what we've just been talking about, which is affect and emotion is mood, something separate. I, so the way that I've, I've conceptualized this, that I've, I've gotten from these other researchers is when we're talking about affect emotions and, and mood, it's, it's not, they aren't these clear categories as much as they are uh, on different, uh, different stages on a time continuum. So if you think about affect as being really quick, emotion being a little bit slower because it involves a little more processing, moods would be the slowest one. It's a sustained emotional state that can really dictate uh, physiology over sustained mm -hmm. amounts of time, uh, longer lasting than emotions, more diffuse than emotions. Yeah, it's connected to emotions, derived from emotions in the same way that emotions are derived from affect, um, but just a longer in, in stretch or duration. Okay. Uh, we're talking now about um, dual process. So now that we've defined um, emotions, affect, mood, and we're going to talk about them in, well, maybe not in opposition to, but in relation to what we think of as reason or logic. So um, the dual process model, Let's talk about that. Can you, can you tell me what is a dual process model? Yeah. So I, I want to be very clear as I'm describing this because uh, although it's not overly complex, there's some nuances that at least were lost on me when I was first learning this. So we have researchers, uh, predominantly researcher out of Harvard, psychologist Joshua Green wrote a book called Moral Tribes um, that coined this dual process model. Um, others along with him, Fiery Cushman and uh, Jonathan Haidt, um, have developed this model. And essentially what it says uh, is that we have two different processes that take place when we're making a moral decision. There are automatic processes. These are quick. And we have more controlled processes that are slower. Now, what they have done as part of their dual process model is they have said automatic processes involve emotion, and result in deontological judgments. And then more controlled processes uh, are more cognitive and they result in utilitarian judgments. Uh, to flesh those out a little bit, they, they do this in the context of trolley problems where, uh, where individuals are forced to make a, a binary decision. Do I, do I sacrifice one life for the sake of many or do I not do anything in the interest of not sacrificing any lives but uh, re resulting in, in greater loss or greater harm. Um, and they have all sorts of ways to pitch this. One of, I, I did a replication study where we used one dilemma 
uh, of uh, a mother is in the basement of a home in a village with a bunch of other villagers and um, an enemy comes into the village and they're searching for everyone. Now the mother's holding a child. Then the child starts to cry. If the child continues to cry, uh, the enemy will know where they are, come down to the basement, kill everyone. Uh, the child, the mother can smother the baby though, her own child and save the village by, by keeping everything quiet and everyone goes undetected. Um, the utilitarian decision there, the, and, and what they would say the more controlled processes uh, is you smother the baby for the sake of the greatest good, even though you are doing a really tragic harm, you are committing mm. a really tragic harm. The deontological choice is I'm, I'm not going to take a life. I'm not going to take responsibility for taking a life, whether that's your child or not. Um, the baby cries, everyone dies, but you, you followed a normative rule about mm. what, um, what is good in that situation. Now, the, the place where there's a lot of debate and where I'm, I'm heavily borrowing from the, the points that a, a, a researcher at Oxford brings up, Guy uh, Kahani, uh, where he dissects his dual process model. He goes, they've, they've made some leaps that the data does not warrant yet. And those leaps are associating automatic processes with emotion or uh, more controlled processes with cognition. There are a variety of situations, and I agree with them on this, there are a variety of situations where I can have an, an automatic process that is not emotional. Hmm. Think about uh, when you use language uh, or you do something out of habit. Those things are very quick, very automatic, don't necessarily involve emotion. Contrarily, I can also spend a lot of time uh, through a controlled process thinking about something. I, I think about these two interests that I have, and all of a sudden I'm torn between the two. And I experience an emotion because I have engaged in this really controlled cognitive process. So that's one leap. The other thing is leaping from uh, automatic and controlled processes to these philosophical schools of thought, deontology and utilitarianism. Um, deontology, again, very much like associated with Kant, um, Philippa Foote, virtue ethicists like uh, Alistair McIntyre, um, which essentially say like, there's a rule that you move through life with. There are these moral norms that should just dictate uh, these decisions. Right. And Green and this school's like very, very against that. They, they're, not, they're not big fans of Kant. Utilitarian is expanding the possibility for the greatest good, do whatever it mm -hmm. takes to maximize good. Jeremy so Bentham, John Stuart Mill, uh, Peter Singer is a more modern one. So, yeah, if, we so bring it back, if we bring it back to the villagers, right? Because I want to I make this uh, yeah. map on for everybody. So um, if we bring it back to, I love that villager experience uh, it, it, metaphor. I think it's better than the trolley. Um, so yeah. if the woman in the basement trying to save the village and something in me, when you said smother the baby, I had this automatic response, right? It was just yes. like, don't do that. Don't do that. So this would be the automatic automatic response that you're talking about versus the controlled process, which is saying, okay, what's best to do for the village, for everybody here? Um, and so you're saying that the quick instinct that tells me don't kill the baby, this is automatic, but uh, not necessarily based on emotion all the time is what you're saying. Right. And that's what I would say is the really valuable and like most salient point in this research and something that comes up more with Jonathan uh, Hyde's work is, is that we are driven by intuition more than we would like to think. That that intuitive, like, 
I don't want to do that feeling. Uh, as much as we want to think our, as of ourselves as rational and reasonable and really controlled and able to make judgments out of, out of what we actually think, we have intuitive responses to a lot of these things where the judgment is already made before we know it. And then our reason comes up afterwards to justify it to the people around us. Mm. Um, and that point, I think, is very important uh, to the field of moral judgment and just to uh, the, the, the person moving through life. Yes. So determining the dual process model is not actually about affective or emotional versus logic. It's actually about controlled versus automatic. That's yes. I think that's what they have the ability to say. They have extended it farther and other researchers are showing that they might not have as much warrant right. to extend it as far. So this as is have, all debate yes. that that other piece about emotion and reason. This is all it's, it's contested to say the least. It's okay. contested. Yeah. All right. Well, that's good stuff. And so um, when it comes down to it, you mentioned that um, we're not all as rational as we might like to think. And I know I'm aware of, of certain studies that they talk about bias and they talk about post hoc reasoning where yeah. they show that, like, if you have if you give somebody a choice of, you know, picking from five socks, five pairs of socks, for example, and they're all the exact same, uh, the person will pick the first pair or pick the one that's closest to them or farthest left. Um, and, and then afterwards come up with explanations for why it's the best pair. And they've done this, um, in, in many different ways. And so they've said, there was this big debate is like, you know, are we even, are we rational at all? Can we say that we are reasoning beings or are we simply just explaining this thing after the fact to ourselves and to each other? And that goes along with what you're saying about how it's kind of a myth that we're all very cold, calculated reasoning beings doing things on purpose. Um, so, so what yeah. is this? I mean, what are the implications of this? This is huge, right? I mean, I think if, if you ask the average person, they would say, yes, personal responsibility. Everybody should be responsible for themselves and, and know and be punished if not. And, uh, you know, can we really keep a person accountable? How does this work? <laughs> Well, I, I want to just quickly cite uh, a study that gets often cited here, which they, they studied the actual uh, morality of ethics professors, uh, moral <laughs> philosophers. Have you heard this? And they just found that there's no significant difference between them and people that don't formally study moral philosophy. Like these people know all the right answers. They know they have these really articulate concepts of what they believe the good is but their actual behavior doesn't align with it. So I, that's, that's <laughs> always been this point of fascination. Um, the, the, I, I think there's a point to be added as an asterisk here, which is while we are very driven by these intuitive drives, I mean, Jonathan Haidt has a good analogy of a rider and an, and an elephant, um, where the elephant is our subconscious, our intuitive force, making these decisions and kind of deciding where it wants. And when you look at it initially, you think the rider on top of the elephant is controlling and dictating, but really the rider is kind of more shepherding. Like the elephant's deciding where it wants to go, but the rider is able to, to steer a little bit. Um, and when we look at that steering capacity as a whole over time, humanity has done some really radical acts of shaping our moral intuitions about things. I mean, you look at, at ethics around homosexuality in England just even 20 years ago and how radically those have changed, in the, in the US as well, how radically those have changed. Um, you look at where we were at as humans 300 years ago 
with what we considered to be moral and how radically that has changed while our, our genes and, and I would argue our intuitions about some of these things have not changed. So we, we do have the ability to make choices, but when we're entering into situations as individuals, it's important to know that the words coming out of your mouth, as much as they might feel like your actual decision, uh, might actually be the result of an intuitive drive or an emotion that you're having that was triggered long before you started talking. And where I think uh, listeners and just I, where I take this personally is a lot more humility when I think I've appraised the situation exactly, or um, a lot more grace when someone is coming to me uh, with, uh, with a conflict or a strong emotion. Um, there's realizing that we're not as, as cognitively in charge of ourselves as we'd like to think we are, I think allows us to be a little more flexible with people, a little softer, a little more gentle and, and offer each other a little more grace when we're working through these things. Yeah, I agree. And I love that. And I think, I think the world could use more of that, more forgiving on yourself and of others. Um, yeah. and, and it's a very divided world right now. Um, so this, this is a nice transition into, you know, we're talking about this hyper rationality, or at least this, this notion that we think of ourselves this way. Um, we, I know you and I have talked about in the past that, you know, the decade of the brain, the cognitive revolution, these are, these are kind of big movements within psychology where we kind of wanted to believe about ourselves, right? That we, we had these capabilities and that it was all about the brain and it was all about reason and logic. Um, but it's kind of all the research is kind of leading us back towards each other interrelatedness and, and how we make sense of our identity. And, and this is always in relation to someone or something else. Um, so this, this has also led to neurocentrism, you know, studying the brain and okay. So if it, if it shows this in the brain, then that must be real. This, this must be, this must be meaningful. And, and even taking a step further and being saying that this is causal, right? Look, yeah. this is, so this is biological reductionism. Um, and yeah. this is, this is something that a lot of people fall victim to in, in just their, you know, just their daily life. They think of this. So it's really nice to look at an image of a brain that's, you know, on the MRI showing up as blue. And then on the other one, uh, you know, it's showing up as a different color. And the doctor saying this, see, this shows these differences in behavior or mood or feelings and things. And um, it's really, we have to say, well, wait, 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 not so fast. Um, so yeah, I, I know yeah. we talked about Piaget, um, uh, and Winnicott, which is where Keegan gets his views. Um, and Winnicott's famous phrase, what was his, his, he talked about how the baby mirroring. Uh, yes. Yeah. The great description of how a child learns an emotion like love. Um, he looks at the mother holding her child in her arms. And as the mother looks down with an expression of love, the child mimics the expression and so triggers uh, an internal process that, that mimics the mother's feeling of love. So essentially the child's learning what love feels like by seeing it in the face of its mother. This is why uh, attachment uh, is such a big thing when we're talking about child development. This is why a physical contact and, and looking a child in the eyes is so important for their development um, because they're learning about themselves through other people there's mm. there's no other way for that to happen so there's never just a baby right there's always the baby never just a mother. baby there's always never the baby, baby in its environment there's never just yeah. a human it just goes through adult development as well there's never just a person there's always the person and its environment that it is making meaning within 
Um, and so, you know, this totally to, to bring it back to the neurocentrism and this baby learning about love through the, the gaze of its mother. Um, this is the most important piece is that this is happening in interaction. Uh, now, while the fMRI may show something in the child's brain, does this if we see that, OK, there's these, these patterns in the brain, does, does this mean what does this mean? Does this mean this has caused love or like, you know, the most important piece is, is that interaction, I would say. So that neurocentrism, yeah. what do you think about that? Well, I, I mean, to look at the disciplines real quick, psychology has been uh, vying for its legitimacy um, for a really long time. Um, it's, it, you have the physicists that have these really complicated, really neat tools um, really neat equations, math equation. I mean, you could even say they sit underneath math, mathematicians. You have mathematics, physics, and then uh, economists that that are trying to that also have similarly elegant tools. Um, however, you want to define that. And then psychologists have felt a need to bolster the claims they're making. Um, working with people is inherently messy. And so in a bid to reduce some of that messiness and some of that complexity, we've jumped to um, novel tools, ways that can demystify the human experience. And we've gotten a lot of amazing stuff from neuroscience. I don't, I don't want to bash that at all. Like mm. just to, like Jorge Moll is, uh, he's a Brazilian uh, moral judgment researcher. He's done some amazing things validating and disproving parts of the dual process model. Um, looking at what's happening internally while we're engaging in these moral dilemmas. Like he's someone like him has contributed a lot to our understanding of this, but I think we err when we, we get overly fascinated with the specificity of these tools and forget what you just said, Greg, that this is taking place in a contextualized environment, that no moral dilemma delivered in an fMRI machine is actually going to match what is happening when an individual interacts with another real individual in the real world. Right. We currently do not have a way to capture that complexity. And as much as we would like to think we're right there, we're, we're not. We're not. Right. I I've hope that we will get better at that. But in the meantime, we need to, I, I would advocate for humility as, as, we're, as we're getting data through this, through these yes, methods. Yes, I would agree. I'm glad to hear you share these sentiments. And, you know, I love psychology. It's my, it's my life's purpose. It's my passion, right? And uh, it is a new science. It is a young science compared to all the rest. Um, and so you think about, okay, how will we develop models where we can actually take into account all of the weak causal factors. There's many, 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 many weak causal factors. Mm. Lisa, Lisa Feldman Barrett recently wrote an article about this. It's not like, okay, X plus Y equals Z and you change X and now Z is different. It's, it's always, it's like all twix, 26 letters of the alphabet contributing, you know, there's so many variables and each of them contributes a weak causal role um, to the outcome and they all affect each other as well. So, um, you know, you got to think that maybe AI will, will, will have a lot to contribute mm. when, when we're talking about actually, you know, breaking some of these things down. I just cannot see measuring all of these things on a person via fMRI. It, it seems impossible. So, um, you know, speaking of technology, AI and all of these, uh, I know you're involved in um, a startup um, called Hubble Learning. Um, and, and so yeah. you got you, you, you. Um, and Andres are, are taking into account all of these things. How, how is technology affecting psychology? Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're trying to tackle a way to adaptively guide families through uh, their child's social and emotional development process. 
um, in a way that we just haven't been able to do yet because uh, one, uh, social emotional uh, learning is a relatively new field. So there's still a lot of work being done to, uh, to articulate agreement between different researchers and agreement between different constructs and vocabulary. Stephanie Jones at Harvard has done a really important thing by, um, by kind of setting up a thesaurus of, of SEL terms so we can figure out what correlates to what. Um, but as this has emerged, uh, we're, we're trying to find a way to one, democratize SEL, so take it outside of school districts and classrooms that can afford a complicated curriculum and personalize it in a way that an individual is getting the learning that they need, um, taking into account their developmental stage and just where they're at with the learning. Um, So delivering SEL concepts to a whole group, a group of 30 kids, it works, but it's just not the best. And so we've created an adaptive curriculum um, that matches where learners at with these skills. Um, there's there's a little bit of a of a question of I, I think a valid question of how well can we teach these skills um, things like how to handle jealousy, how to set goals, um, how to pursue goals, how to uh, you know get greater awareness of your emotional experience. How well we can do that in a digital environment. Um, we've seen really good results so far and we're excited for, to continue to like answer that question. That's amazing. I'm really glad you guys are tackling those issues because I know how hard parenting is, even though I'm not a parent, having taught uh, in the classroom for seven years, you see all that parents have on their plate. You see how, yes, kids are learning a lot at school, a lot of information, but yeah, now that we're kind of saying the social and emotional development of a child, this also falls under you know, at school, uh, the responsibilities of school, well, who's going to teach that, right? Is it going to be the English teacher? Is it going to be the science teacher? Is, is it going to be the parents? How much time and, and who and how? These are all yeah. questions. And I'm glad that you guys are finding these solutions through technology. Um, so so I wish you guys all the best. I'll have to have Andres on here to uh, on the podcast to talk more about that. Yeah. Oh, he'll have a lot to say. Yeah. Cool. So lots of good stuff we've just, uh, you know, contemplated and discussed here. Um, from more morality, sense of purpose, we're talking about agency and how, you know, responsibility and how all of these things affect your motivation, your well-being. Uh, we transitioned into moral judgment and to what extent we can say that automatic processes versus controlled processes and emotion versus reason um, are responsible for these. And we just also um, had a nice little conversation about neurocentrism, biological reductionism, and um, you know where where psychology is kind of heading as a field, and how we can use technology to teach social emotional learning. So, lots of good stuff. So, so what's next for you, Brendan? What do you have coming up that we can we can look out for? I I, lo- I love that question. So we're currently analyzing data from uh, we've interviewed college students from across thirteen schools. Um, and we're analyzing the data now to understand what happens during college and what parts of college either lend themselves or um, dissuade the development of purpose. Uh, we're also looking at just what happened with students during this time of COVID. So we'll hopefully have a few papers that come out from that. We're, we're excitedly digging in right now um, as, as we speak. But yeah, really nice. well, there's, there's some great stuff emerging. All right. Well, can't wait to see it. And I wish you all the best with that. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Greg. Take care. Always great talking with you. Bye.